You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Amir D. Axel is the author of Fermat's Last Theorem. His new book is The Artist and the Mathematician, the story of Nicolas Bourbaki, the genius mathematician who never existed. Welcome to the program, Amir. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Amir, let's talk a little bit about this book, your new book. It's a fascinating history of math in the 20th century. And what I want to start out with, I want to set the scene. What was the practice of mathematics like in the year, around the year 1900, in the very first years of the 20th century? It wasn't the way we know it now, was it? No, uh, mathematics has sort of gone down in, in the few centuries, well, in many centuries since the Greeks. The Greeks, um, for some reason, uh, along with their greatness in art and in political science and in culture and everything else, the ancient Greeks had a lot of time on their hands and they could develop cultural interests and mathematics was one of them and they looked at mathematics as this beautiful edifice built um, axioms and on them you build theorems and lemmas and corollaries and they're all proven to to perfect detail as a mathematician would say rigorously with all the important details that make a proof to them a proof was like a like a poem and uh, since then through the middle ages and into the uh, modern age mathematics pretty much sank down to um, a level where it was used for applications, but without much rigor, without abstractness, without important details of, of proofs, where proof is really constructed correctly. So um, mathematics, uh, even in Newton's time, wasn't practiced very precisely. Newton defined things like fluxions uh, in, in developing the calculus, which wasn't a very precise concept. Today we'd call them differentials and they're more they're defined more correctly. So in, in, around the turn of the century, um, as, as you mentioned, the, the 20th century, mathematics was uh, pretty much in disarray. There were some good mathematicians in various countries, but mathematics wasn't done very rigorously, especially in France. Now if you go a little further until, uh, in time, Till after the First World War, the state of French mathematics was even worse because of the war. Um, I forget the number, but something like a third of all mathematicians in France died in the First uh, World War, um, if, if not more. And so um, what happened was there was a dearth of good mathematicians to practice mathematics the way it's supposed to be, the way we think it's supposed to be, very correctly, abstractly, in great generality, and with good detail. So this, there were bad textbooks and uh, professors that didn't really motivate the students, and there wasn't really a central um, clearinghouse for ideas in mathematics or a central body that could oversee how mathematics should be done. And that's what uh, brought on the idea of Bourbaki. Tell us a little bit about Bourbaki it was really founded between, there were two kind of poles of personality poles in this. And one of them is Alexandre Rotendik, and the other was Andre, Andre Vey. So tell us a little bit about these two men. They were very different and had very different backgrounds. Well, the Bourbaki had uh, two poles. One was Alexander Grodendieck, and the other one is André Vey. Uh, it's W-E-I-L, but he pronounced it Vey. There were uh, Jews from Alsace-Lorraine who uh, 
had really a, a German origin name who, who became French and, and their name with him. Vey was uh, a child of privilege. Um, he was raised in Paris. Um, I, I passed by his apartment just a few months ago in Paris, and I'm always amazed at the, the, the privilege which he had as, as a child. This apartment overlooks the Luxembourg Gardens in this beautiful building. His parents were rich. Uh, his father was a doctor, very successful medical doctor. And he, he was spared no... Um, no luxury as as a child. He could uh, go to courses that were uh, even beyond his his age or his uh, his development in high school already. And then at university, he got to hear he got to hear Einstein speak. When Einstein came to Paris to speak to um, professors, he was there. So uh, he he was a ve- he was really a child of privilege um, and a very good mathematician, but probably not the best. And Alexander Grothendieck, who was born later, was born in 1928. Raised a little older, was was raised in the camps. Um, people think that uh, only the Nazis had camps, but the French had concentration camps as early as 1936, at the end of the uh, Spanish Civil War. His parents uh, participated in the Spanish Civil War, and the French rounded up all these foreigners and Jews and put them in camps in the uh, Pyrenees. They actually visited the location of these camps and. Uh, you still get the feeling that uh, these were awful places. Uh, and uh, so he was raised in these camps, no privilege at all. He was the opposite um, in his upbringing uh, than André Veil. There were no resources for him to learn mathematics in these camps. The teachers were, were awful, and uh, the textbooks close to non-existent. And he ended up, he was such a genius, Alexander. He is such a genius, Alexander Grothendieck, that he developed much of mathematics, which had already been developed, but he didn't know that because he didn't have the uh, uh, education that he needed. So he developed parts of mathematics, um, in particular a part called measure theory, on his own, even though it had been done before. As, as a child growing up in the camps, it's just a fantastic story. And uh, then he comes to Paris at the end of the war, and he's um, pretty much um, you know, traumatized from being raised in the camps. He comes to this um, group of mathematicians, the best French mathematicians um, in Paris, and he tries to learn as much as he can. And then he becomes the greatest mathematician of the 20th century, develops parts of algebraic geometry all on his own, and at age 40, he goes crazy and disappears in the Pyrenees. He's a really fascinating figure. And what was interesting to me, too, was the background of André Vey as a prankster. And he was really impressed by one uh, prank that had been pulled by some students at the Montparnasse of Trash. Tell us a little bit about that <laughs> scene and that prank. That was a really interesting story. That's a very funny prank, right? Uh, these students love these pranks, and they still do today, I understand. Um, as uh, kids do at MIT and other American universities, too. But the French were experts at it. And uh, what happened was uh, Montparnasse uh, is is really Mount Parnassus. And this is in the southern uh, boundary of of, of the center of Paris, as, as many people know this uh, boulevard Montparnasse. And there was a pile of garbage there that was never collected, never cleaned up. And the students named it Mount Parnassus uh, after the Greek mountains. So that's how the name came, Mount Parnassus, Montparnasse, Boulevard Montparnasse. Of course, it's a very chic place nowadays. and was in Hemingway's time, too. There are about um, four, I think, three, yeah, four uh, Hemingway cafes there. I'd like to, to go there. They're, uh, cool places. Anyway, um, this uh, Montparnassus, Boulevard Montparnasse, was a place where a lot of the students from the Sorbonne, the University of Paris, uh, congregated. 
and um, they uh, like to play pranks. At one point, one uh, person, the, the people uh, sort of congregated around this mound, um, and one person stood up and said, uh, held a microphone and said, uh, here is uh, an ambassador of Poldavia or an official of the country of Poldavia, and we're getting a collection of money because... Um, to support this uh, starving nation of Poldavia. And he was standing behind something, and, and then he said that it was people, the people of Poldavia are so poor that they can't even afford pants. And then this uh, other student stepped behind, uh, you know, he, he was standing behind something, he stepped up, and people could see he was in his underwear. So this was the, the uh, practical joke that they played on, uh, on the passerby who had already given money for this uh, fake clause, of course, um, fake cause, this country of... Uh, of Poldavia never existed, and uh, Andre Ver liked it so much. He was so obsessed with this um, with this joke that uh, I understand that uh, the last thing on, on uh, when he died was a membership in in the uh, Academy of Sciences of Poldavia. He just loved this uh, this joke, and uh, the idea of Bourbaki, of course, was an outcome of uh, this elaborate um, prank. So tell us a little bit about Bourbaki. There was actually a general named Bourbaki. Yeah, the um, Bourbaki. Uh, what is Bourbaki? Bourbaki is uh, named after um, a general, um, a um, French general of Greek extraction. That's why the name is really Greek. Bourbaki. His name was Charles Bourbaki, and um, he was born in the south uh, of France in the city of Pau. And uh, his parents were were Greek immigrants. And uh, in in the um, in this. Um, context of pranks, uh, the members of Bourbaki, who were these bright young mathematicians in France, they chose an anti-hero as their, um, as their model. General Bourbaki uh, commanded an important force uh, in the French war against uh, the Prussians in 1870, and he lost uh, major battles. Uh, he was just this perennial loser. At some point, uh, he, his forces had to escape to Switzerland, and then they were captured by the Germans, and he tried to commit suicide, but he wasn't even successful at that, so he couldn't even commit suicide, and uh, he, was, um, he ended his career um, uh, pretty miserably. So they chose his name, Bourbaki, and um, the first name they chose was Nicholas instead of Charles. So... Um, at some point, they created, uh, these uh, young French mathematicians created a fake birth certificate for Nicolas Bourbaki, and they thought they were creating a real person. Uh, there were wedding invitations for his daughter Betty's um, wedding and um, uh, other documents that they just manufactured to, to sort of back up this uh, idea that there was such a person by the name of Nicolas Bourbaki. And they even published um, earlier on, before the Bourbaki group uh, created this identity, somebody had published a mathematical treatise that was completely imaginary. And this is a, a prank that we've seen these more recently, too, um, by uh, D. Bourbaki, as it were. There was a publication early on by uh, D. Bourbaki, and this was when uh, Andre Vey went to India. Uh, he was very young, he was 23 years old, and they made him a chair of a mathematics department, the Aligarh University uh, in India, and went to his head. Of course, he was a child of privilege at age 23. He was a department chair, and he was supervising people who were much older and more experienced than him. At some point, a mathematician by the name of Kosambi came, uh, came up to him and uh, tried to work with him, and uh, Burbaki... And, uh, 
Bourbaki, that was his alter ego, they uh, decided to, uh, to suggest to Kosambi to write a paper about the second, theor- the second theorem of D. Bourbaki and publish it in, in a journal of the local mathematical society in India. And he did. And of course, it was a fake theorem. So this was the first result attributed um, to Bourbaki is not a real theorem. And um, it, it was just a, a, a prank to see if a mathematical society with the review process would accept uh, a paper that was all nonsense. So they managed to do that and get this paper by Kusambi um, accepted by this uh, journal, even though it was all nonsense. And the person who um, supposedly wrote it, uh, D. Bourbaki, whom um, they said uh, died uh, during the revolution or was poisoned during the revolution. So um, he just enjoyed these jokes and he always wanted to see what he could get away with. And this was one thing he could get away with. Tell us a little bit about the Bourbaki group. These were some really unusual mathematicians. They didn't meet in in, uh, rooms. They liked to meet outside, didn't they? They met uh, outside. They didn't like to do mathematics the old... uh, uh, the old-fashioned way and the old way, the way it was done uh, in a boring uh, manner in a, in a classroom and uh, in front of a blackboard. So they would meet outside, and uh, they, they loved these French cafes. So they'd often meet in French cafes and do uh, do mathematics in the open. And then they took it one step further and started having, these were seven or eight people. Nobody knows the exact number because it fluctuated through, um, throughout time. But um, there, they started as six, and then somebody joined. So there are six, seven, eight, nine. 10 at various times, and they would uh, then start meeting in uh, resort towns in France. So they did mathematics really in the open. And then there are pictures of the members of Bourbaki sitting um, in the sun uh, in shorts and, and, and sometimes without shirts and uh, lounging around doing mathematics the way you wouldn't think that mathematics uh, was done. But they, they brought this informality into mathematics in the one hand, in the way it was uh, done outwardly, in the way people looked when they did mathematics. On the other hand, they introduced great detail and great generality in the way mathematics is done actually on, on paper, um, the way mathematics is pursued. Proving a theorem was a major thing. It wasn't something, oh, um, with what we'll say, we would say today, hand-waving this detail. Well, you can wave your hand at it. Well, you couldn't wave your hand at, at anything. Any detail had to be proven with rigor. So on one hand, they did mathematics that way. On the other, outwardly, they did it uh, as, as a... As a uh, leisurely activity in a resort town while swimming, hiking, um, running, playing sports, and so on. Grotendieck was was the son of anarchists, and, and this the idea of anarchy plays kind of a part in the way they created their papers. These men got together, and they, they were going to publish papers under a single name, Nicolas Bourbaki, and the way they created these papers was completely open. There were no rules, were there? So the question is, how did they do it? And was anarchy uh, uh, an element here? And that's something that uh, um, hasn't really occurred to me until now. That's that's a very good point. Uh, Gordon Deke's parents were anarchists. Uh, um, They took place in many, um, uh, took part in many um, places in Europe where anarchy was was rampant, uh, such as the uh, Spanish Civil War, and and they uh, they lived in Berlin and uh, and Hamburg and Paris, and they're always into these anarchist causes. And the way Bur- uh, the way uh, Alexander Grodendieck was raised at home before he went to the camps 
was uh, indeed in, in a way where there are no rules. Anything he could do as a child, he could do anything he wanted. He had parents who just hated rules uh, and, and uh, rejected any authority. And indeed, the way uh, Bourbaki did mathematics was, uh, was similar. There was uh, anarchy where when they met, uh, they would, uh, there were no rules. People would shout at each other, and uh, um, anybody could speak who wanted to and interrupt everybody else. And out of this chaos, this anarchy, there always came something good at the end, which is an interesting lesson, I think, to um, perhaps to us today, that uh, brainstorming works no matter how you do it. Uh, anybody can shout their view, and, and, and if, if this is done correctly, if the meeting is held correctly, at the end, all the chaos will fall into place, and a good result will come out of it, such as a mathematical paper or, or a book or, or parts of a book or a chapter. So um, that's in, they, they were anarchists in a sense, and that's why um, Grodendieck felt uh, welcome within Bourbaki for a while until he... Uh, diverged from the group in his views and in his view of mathematics as a whole. So tell us a little bit about Bourbaki as a secret society, shaping the world of math for the entire world. I was a child of the new math in the 60s. I remember it vividly, everybody saying, oh, we're getting the new math now. So tell us how Bourbaki, this created persona, which was really a mixed group of uh, French mathematicians, how did they operate, and how did they create a unified voice for their publications? Bourbaki was a group of people that had an affinity for each other and for the group as a whole, uh, and they stress it uh, in all their interviews of members of Bourbaki. They liked each other. So while they had dif differing points of view and uh, often argued and fought over many things, they had uh, uh, many things that united them. Uh, first of all, they were mostly French. Uh, there was one Swiss member who just died a couple of years ago, a very great uh, mathematician, Emile Bo uh, Borel, Armand Borel. Um, there were American members, and uh, there were other members at various times. But it was mostly a French group. It met in France, uh, and French culture united them. In fact, in the book, I tried to make the point that uh, other things in French culture and in Western culture in general are related to Bourbaki. In fact, I draw a, a connection between uh, uh, the appearance of, of uh, cubism and the mathematics of Bourbaki. So they were influenced by what was happening around them. Uh, they were mostly French, and they spoke the same language in many ways, not only the French language, but they understood each other very well. And even though they would fight, they would always create something that, that made sense at the end. So uh, these people were um, um, very different in some ways and, and very similar uh, in, in probably in important ways. And more important than anything else was their view of mathematics, what mathematics should be. And their view of mathematics was, as I mentioned earlier, to go back to the ancient Greeks. They named their volumes of uh, the books, the, the books they were writing on mathematics, the elements of mathematics. And that harks back to the elements the, of Euclid, Euclid's elements. So they thought that they were recreating mathematics in the ancient Greek traditions. And these were French mathematicians going back to ancient Greece, and they very strongly believed in what they were doing. So I think the faith that what they were doing was so important 
um, for mathematics and perhaps for society as a whole because their ideas then went into and influenced work in anthropology. The structuralist movement of Claude Lévi-Strauss um, in anthropology was influenced by Bourbaki and the uh, literary group Olipo, which is again a French group, uh, was influenced by Bourbaki as well. So they had a very strong unified vision as to what they were doing and that's why they were able to do all these things. Tell us a little bit about the work of Claude Lévy, Strauss, and Bourbaki. Strauss was trying to solve a problem, and he had to come to uh, André Vey for some help, didn't he? So what happened with uh, Claude Lévy-Strauss? Lévy-Strauss um, left uh, France uh, because of the Second World War, being Jewish, and so was Vail. They were both in New York. Lévy-Strauss was uh, the inventor or developer uh, or discoverer of structural anthropology. He was working on very difficult problems of marriage laws. He worked a lot uh, in South America and Brazil, and um, people who read his book, Tris Tropiques, know that part of the story. Uh, he went to places where no um, outsiders have ever gone before, no uh, Western people in the jungles of um, of Brazil, and he discovered interesting things there. He discovered structure in, in, in what we'd say primitive societies, or societies that hadn't had Western influence on them. So he found some very intricate connections among members of the population, which he then found even more, to, to a greater degree, these connections were stronger in uh, tribes in, in Australia, uh, Aborigines. These Aborigines uh, had, and still do, uh, have a very um, uh, important rules that govern their society. These are the marriage rules. And I've talked to people who lived among the Aborigines, and, and they, tell, they tell us that uh, what these uh, people do is everything they do in life is, is related to these marriage laws. These marriage laws um, sort of run their lives. So um, th these rules are extremely intricate. Uh, I couldn't even repeat them without looking them up. Uh, y you, you must marry a particular cousin, such as uh, your father's uh, sisters, um, if you're a man, uh, it would be a, a daughter, and, and, and vice versa. So these are cross cousins where you must marry if you can this one cross cousin, but the other cross cousin with the opposite relation, um, your mother's brother's uh, child, you are is taboo. So these rules are very, very complex, and Lévi-Strauss couldn't, couldn't analyze them. He couldn't understand why these rules are there, what is their function, and whether the society he was observing was uniform or not. And that's really a mathematical question, whether you have a tribe that's really subdivided into smaller groups, which intermarry among themselves and not throughout the whole thing. And you really need to work it out mathematically. So he was stuck with this uh, marriage law problem in New York, and he went to a very famous mathematician named Adamar, H-A-D. Um, the M-A-R-D, uh, um, Hadamar. And, uh, Hadamar was uh, an, an important French mathematician, was also um, in, in, in exile in New York. And Hadamar, Hadamar told um, Lévi-Strauss, there are four um, operations in mathematics, addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. Marriage is not one of them. So he didn't want to deal with the problem. And then after a few months, he found André Vail. And André Vail said, um, yes, sure, I'll, I'll work on your problem. And the interesting thing here is that Vail was a pure mathematician. He never really liked to work on any applications. But for some reason, he was induced to help Lévi-Strauss. And he worked on this problem for a while and used very abstract algebra, group theory, to uh, solve the problem. So he was able to show Lévi-Strauss how this population 
work in terms of uh, some rules. When is the population uniform and when is it really broken down into subpopulations within a tribe or, or, a, or a group of tribes? So um, this was a very important connection that was forged between pure, the pure mathematics of Bourbaki, and Bourbaki really did a lot of work on, on group theory and things like that. So it was exactly the kind of mathematics that Bourbaki did and uh, a connection of that with, uh, with anthropology. So this really helped cement this idea of structural anthropology, which would have uh, been developed without mathematics but became more, more uh, rigorous uh, and, and with stronger mathematical underpinnings through the work, the joint work of uh, Levi-Strauss with, uh, with André Vey. So this... Um, cross-pollination between mathematics and anthropology. And of course, there was uh, um, ideas coming from anthropology and linguistics uh, back into mathematics and, and other areas. So all these uh, different groups were, were practicing uh, uh, this idea of structuralism, which uh, underlies the work of Bourbaki and underlies modern anthropology, linguistics, and, um, and economics, too. Let's talk a little bit about economics. It's one of the social sciences that has the most math in it. So, and one of the, one of the things that Bourbaki introduced was the concept of the model as an economic tool. Tell us a little bit about the concept of a model. Where did the concept of a model come into uh, economics? Well, of course, mathematics uh, played an important role here. Uh, and anybody who studies economics today uh, works with mathematical models. I, I'd, I'd like to bring an interesting um, example here, and that's something that everybody knows about. That's uh, the movie A Beautiful Mind. Uh, John Nash was a mathematician at Princeton, but uh, he had uh, the good fortune to, to go into economics, into mathematical economics, and that allowed him to get the Nobel Prize, which he shared with two others in 1994. Of course, in mathematics, there is no Nobel Prize, and uh, there are lots of stories as to why. Um, uh, basically, uh, Nobel didn't like a particular math mathematician, and um, he decided not to have a, a prize in economics. So, uh, I'm sorry, in mathematics. So mathematicians who go into economics can get the Nobel Prize, and that's what happened to John Nash. And like Nash, there are a lot of other economists who do mathematical economics. And as mathematics became more important in applications, so did economics come down to the masses, so to speak. In my days, when I was a student uh, 30 years ago, economics was a very, uh, was a n not really an abstract, well, I would say even abstract discipline. It was really an ivory tower um, uh, discipline where um, what you did was uh, write papers, very abstract uh, um, sort of general papers that uh, seem to have no connection with the real world. Now, today, the, uh, economics is um, very, very applied, and uh, most people know at least something about economics. You know, this is an interesting thought. We've seen a lot more writing about economics, and economics is playing a bigger part in our lives, and that's feeding back into the writing. Recently, there's been a, a spate of uh, genre fictions, different genre fiction writers are, are latching on to economics, and foremost among these are science fiction writers, because economics is, after all, a science. So can you tell me maybe why economics might be an interesting science upon which to base speculative fiction? 
I think that the main reason is the fact that economics has uh, become uh, a tool in everyday life much, much more than it used to be uh, 10, 20, 30 years ago. The Internet plays an important role here. Um, anybody who surfs the web finds uh, economic information. It's inescapable. Uh, if you own stocks, you, you get economic uh, information uh, more than you even want it. Uh, if you are interested in buying a house, uh, economic information is extremely important. Interest rates, for example. Um, many years ago, these were more or less academic ideas that uh, created uh, papers and journals that a uh, few people read other than economists or mathematicians. If you look at the very abstract economics or econometric um, journals, uh, this is all um, formulas, just like mathematics, as if this was pure mathematics. But because of the Internet, in part, and, and other things, this has come down to, 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 to the average person. So economics has become a very sexy topic, and that's why it appears in literature. Now, if you look at the Nobel Prizes given in the last few years, they're all in areas that have applications in the real world. 2004, Uh, the Nobel Prize in Economics was given to Kidland and Prescott for um, something that connects macroeconomic theory with a business cycle. I and mean, what can be more uh, applied in a sense, a business cycle where businesses do better and then they peak and then they go down and so forth. Um, uh, here you have uh, economic ideas that, that affect everyday life. So this is, I think, an important point that a lot of people who write books now understand. Economics is no longer an abstract discipline. It's something that affects our, our everyday life. Uh, 2003, the Nobel Prize in, econ in Economics that year was uh, given to Robert Engel and, and Clive Granger, who did work on economic time series. Time series are very interesting. Everything, you open uh, the Wall Street Journal or any, any uh, newspaper, and you see these graphs of things that move through time. They're called time series. So you have economic ideas that help you understand time series, uh, the movement of a stock, interest rates, exchange rates, um, unemployment, and so on, uh, GNP. So all of the CPI, all of these things move through time, and you have important models that help you understand them, and not only understand them at an abstract level, but understand them in a real, everyday way. Uh, as, as I gave the example of buying a house, it's very important to know what kind of expectations do you have for interest rates. Should you buy now, or should you not should you wait for interest rates to go down. This is what time series, economic time series is about. And um, look at all the other, um, 2000, in 2005, Robert uh, Allman and, uh, and Thomas Schelling got, got the Nobel Prize for conflict and cooperation through game theory. That goes back to the example I gave earlier of a beautiful mind. So game theory is something that's used in applications anywhere from warfare to economic games. And uh, any, any company that competes with another company um, uh, uses game theory in some, to some degree. For example, um, fare wars uh, between airlines. This is a typical game theory context where you can uh, lower your price and take a loss, hoping that you drive the other airline out of business. So this is a typical game. It's studied through economic theory. So all of these things have uh, really become entrenched in the real world rather than living up here in the sky. One thing you mentioned is that economics is sexy. And I actually think this is true because we've seen a spate of uh, novels where We've had, you know, the rocket ship captain as a hero. We've had the army general as a hero. Now our heroes are managers. 
do you think that our this our awareness of economics has now been fed so deeply back into our social lives that we're no we look at our social lives through an economic lens and the people who are doing best economically are of course the people we admire the most that again has to do with media, not only the internet and movies and uh, uh, and television. But well, um, think of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, uh, here's somebody who who could use economics to to benefit, and and there are many others like him. And they become our heroes today, um, rather than um, uh, people who who do things other than economics, who do uh, what traditionally has been seen as. Uh, sexy occupations. So the, the scientist uh, who uses uh, some kind of uh, an idea, I'm not saying Donald Trump is a scientist, but uh, somebody who uses some ideas of, uh, of economic theory uh, in everyday life, they have become our, our modern heroes. And I think that's very true. Uh, that has to do with the fact that society uh, is, is moving in a particular direction. Uh, it's becoming more technologically advanced. And as you're becoming more technologically advanced, um, economics becomes more important. It's just uh, a fact of life. For example, the, uh, the boom of, of you know, tech companies and, uh, and things like that. Um, it's, it's very important to, to, to see that. Uh, there's an additional factor that brings economics into the forefront uh, of society. And that is the demise of the Soviet Union um, 15 years ago or so. Um, before that, you could argue, say, on the world stage, uh, which, which approach is, is, is correct, the uh, economic uh, laissez-faire capitalist uh, approach to, uh, to life um, on this planet, or, or is it uh, the command economy, which is not really an economy, is not in the realm of uh, economics the way we view it, where um, you know the uh, the Politburo uh, decides how many shoes to. Um, that's the typical example they give you. Uh, how many shoes to produce, and s suddenly they make uh, you know too many shoes with a particular size and not enough of another size. That that's an example where economic forces of supply and demand don't come into play. So I think that the demise of the Soviet Union. And the, uh, uh, the triumphing of, uh, of capitalism also is a factor that brought economics into everyday life because we have become greater believers in the forces of economics, of free economics, than perhaps we, well, we as Americans haven't changed, but the rest of the world might have changed its uh, opinions about economics because of that. I'd like to talk about the way that economics also, it, it enables... Uh, writers to create realistic characters. Um, in, when you're writing a fantasy, something along the lines of J.R.R. Tolkien, or, Tolkien himself didn't pay a lot of attention to, to the economics of what was going on, but we're seeing a lot of fantasy writers now who are not writing about wars between good and evil. They're writing about wars between merchant empires. So, so tell me about how does our why do we fantasize now about economics why do we fantasize today about economics uh, and and the fact is that uh, wars today are not um, fought by forces of uh, bad and evil I, I'm sorry bad and evil uh, good and evil uh, the the reason is uh, to my mind, uh, has again to do with the, the demise of the Soviet Union. Uh, if you read um, Ian Fleming's books, um, well, he's dead, but uh, movies made 
made of his books and his ideas, uh, you see that no longer you have this um, good and evil. You have, uh, you have a world in which economics, well, look at spying, for example. You used to be spying for one uh, power uh, against the other, uh, political power against the other. Now it's spying, uh, corporate spying. Open any newspaper today and you see all these scandals about spying. They're all economic spying. So uh, uh, the, the conflicts in today's world are economic conflicts. Uh, again, because there's no longer this um, evil empire and no longer uh, people who, who, uh, who are against uh, uh, capitalism, uh, at least not many. And so the, the, the conflicts in today's world have to do with economics. You could even cast the conflict between, uh, say, extremist Islam against the West as an economic conflict. It's, it's in a sense a conflict between um, perhaps the have and have not or a society that feels uh, disenfranchised and wants to, to gain through terrorism what it couldn't gain through uh, competition. So um, I, th I think that conflicts uh, and, and really everything that's interesting in today's world has uh, economic implications. And that's why economics has become so important uh, in, in novels and uh, um, uh, science fiction, um, just about every, every kind of writing. And one thing that's also true is we're more frightened of economic consequences now and more aware of them than we ever were before. Uh, T.C. Boyle's new novel, Talk, Talk, is a story that's explicitly based on a Edgar Allan Poe story called uh, William Wilson. And the Poe story is about a doppelganger, which in itself is a kind of a mathematical concept. Um, in uh, Boyle's story, we have the doppelganger is an identity thief. So I, and what happened, what the, what's really scary is what can happen to you financially. These days, it's almost, it's scarier to be in debt than dead. Are we more scared of economic uh, loss than death? And I think uh, that's probably close to the truth. Um, well, death would be the ultimate, the ultimate economic loss. Uh, in fact, you, uh, uh, if you look at uh, cases of um, uh, suits against people who died perhaps wrongfully, uh, they're usually economic. Uh, economics comes in there too. So if you're talking about somebody dying, uh, you measure their uh, future um, incomes uh, in terms of making uh, reparations. And uh, indeed, and that's the extreme example, of course, uh, indeed economic gain and loss is, is extremely important in everyday life. Uh, identity thieves and, and others who might uh, steal your, uh, your credit cards and so on are, are indeed our, our villain. Today's villains are not uh, um, as as strongly the people who might uh, want to wage war as, as those who would want to wage economic war. Even with fear about terrorism, you always worry about economic terrorism where uh, computers might be uh, uh, attacked uh, or uh, financial um, transactions and so on. So indeed, that's, uh, that's a world we're living in today. This, it is a world of economics where economic variables affect everything uh, about us and, and uh, uh, it, they're they're much more interesting. Also, there are less uh, there, there are more shades of gray here than there used to be uh, during uh, the Cold War. Uh, what you have here are people who are uh, uh, trying to get economic gain in in ways that are not uh, legal or or moral. So that makes our conflicts in literature much more interesting. I think. In a manner, it's possible to describe the corporation as the first viable 
working form of artificial intelligence. And and this ha- harkens back to Bourbaki, too, because they were like a group mind. They got together, and the group be- took on a personhood. And this is, in a, as I say, in a way, it foreshadows the way uh, um, corporations act. Those The boards, the members, all act not for their own good, but for the good of this disembodied entity known as the corporation. I'm always shocked, again, when I... I, I should not be because I always studied economics, but uh, I'm, I'm a little taken back. Every time I read that a corporation is an entity that never dies, it's something that was created, and indeed it is similar to, to this idea of Nicolas Bourbaki. Perhaps the members of Bourbaki had more economic uh, understanding than, uh, than they might have admitted because they all thought that they are pure mathematicians with no connection to the real world. But indeed, there's a very strong connection here between an imaginary person called Nuc- Nicolas Bourbaki and a corporation. Uh, in, in France, for example, in Europe, uh, a, a corporation it's called Societe Anonyme. It's an anonymous society. And it's called an anonymous society because you don't know the names of the shareholders or you shouldn't have to know them. The, you know a corporation by its name and you don't know who owns it uh, right now. And in fact, who owns it changes uh, from day to day. People sell their shares, buy shares, and so on. So here you have an invented entity, just like Nicolas Bourbaki, that is a corporation and all the decisions uh, that are made by the board of directors of this uh, corporation or whoever runs this corporation are made so as to increase uh, shareholder equity uh, rather than do anything else. So you're not really concerned with anything but the well-being of this imaginary uh, entity called the corporation. That's a very, very powerful idea. And in fact, that's an idea that's been attacked by people who don't believe in uh, in um, capitalist economics. They don't like the fact that you have these corporations that rule our lives, but that is the way of, uh, of the 21st century, uh, the century when economics really uh, reigns. So what you have are these corporations. You don't, know, you don't necessarily know who the, the owners are, and, and uh, people work um, for this entity that never dies, was born at a certain point by, uh, by a piece of paper, the way Bourbaki was, and continues to live until it goes bankrupt or is bought by somebody else. Um, it's, it, it could be a scary idea, but uh, it's an inescapable idea. It's an idea. Um, our world runs by corporations, and uh, as more countries even adopt the, uh, the Western way of life where corporations are uh, an indispensable entity of everyday life. What's, what's the alternative to that is to have governments uh, control the economy rather than uh, corporations that are owned by, by people. So um, that's, that's the way we live in. That's the world we live in today. Uh, Amir, can you tell us what you're working on now? On your, your yes, next book? Uh, what am I working on now? I'm working uh, on a book that's uh, different from my um, all my previous books, I'm working on evolution now in a book about uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, the famous French philosopher uh, and paleoanthropologist who uh, was there uh, in China in 1929 when Peking Man was discovered. And he was a man who was torn uh, between uh, religion and uh, evolution. He always believed in evolution. He was... Uh, he was uh, exiled to China by the Jesuits. He was a Jesuit, and he took, uh, took his punishment uh, in stride and lived in China for 20 years without being allowed back into the France he loved. And he was there at the right time, at the right place, to, uh, to discover Peking Man along with other people. So this book has to do with it. It will be called uh, The Jesuit and the Skull, and it's about um, 
Well, Thierry de Chardin, the Jesuit, and the skull of Peking man, and how this conflict between science and religion developed, and um, maybe, perhaps, where, where, where is it going today? Well, we'll look forward to reading it. We've been speaking with Amir D. Axel. His new book is The Artist and the Mathematician, the story of Nicholas Bourbaki, the genius mathematician who never existed. Thanks for joining me, Amir. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.